Thank you, Tom, for that introduction and just following up what, what he just said. Um, we really, really appreciate the way that you send us and have sent us now for the last several years. Um, I've said last time we were here, oftentimes when we're in gatherings with other um, missionary people, we, we kind of listen to their stories about their home churches, and usually it's uh, a lot of stories of dysfunction and you know, support falling through the, you know, through the floor. And uh, we, we oftentimes just, I think, <laughs> wisely don't bring up um, <laughs> the way that, that you all have cared for us over the years in terms of your prayers, your support. Uh, people have come over, several people have come over just to spend time with us, just to pray with us, to walk on our roads and to smell what we smell every day and uh, to see our beautiful skies and uh, just enjoy life with us. Um, but we're very thankful, really thankful. In fact, I just the other day had somebody tell me, is we're, we're talking about uh, being sent and uh, she was making a comparison with, with her uh, situation. And she said, I'm, I'm struggling right now with church envy. And uh, just because of the way that, that you all have, have helped us, it's, it's, it's a, a testimony of God's grace. And we're extremely thankful for that. So thank you. This morning, uh, I would like to, you to consider the work of the Great Commission and what we commonly call missions. As Christ ascended back to heaven after the resurrection, he left us with that huge command to go to the ends of the earth, preach the gospel, and make disciples of all nations. And he's telling that to his disciples, and I'm sure they're wondering, wow, this is no small task that he's calling us to. It's really an awesome commission, and it's a stewardship, but it's not just an isolated command at the end of Matthew and in the other gospels. It's really the theme of all of Scripture, so much so that we are told that not until the gospel reaches all people and all the elect are brought in, that Christ will return. But like all, all the commands of Scripture, we as Christians are always caused, called to pause and to consider our obedience to it. None of us will never nail all these commands. You think about the command to love your neighbor. None of us... None of us ever completely nail it, do we? We always need to go back and reconsider and say, how am I walking in this certain command? And this morning, I would like us to consider together, how are we doing in our obedience, in our, our commitment to the Great Commission? A lot of times, you know, when we think about the Great Commission, we kind of fall into one of several categories. One is, a guilt that we are not involved or that we can't be involved. So we really try to avoid thinking about it. Others of us maybe can be motivi- motivated by guilt. So we, we think about the command, then we rush out and try to tell the gospel to our neighbor or any innocent bystander that we can find. Or we try to do a number of good things based upon our desire to get out from under the guilt of this command. Another response that some of us struggle with is to think that we're doing enough Maybe we identify ourselves as world Christians. We give, we pray, we can name all the unreached people groups in alphabetical order backwards. So we got this. Everyone else doesn't. For others, maybe we have never even really considered seriously Christ's call to take the gospel to the nations. Or maybe we don't even know our role. We understand this massive command, but where do we fit in as disciples of Christ? 
Well, this morning, I would like to invite you to freshly consider the call that Christ has given us to declare His glory among the nations. Really, my prayer is that God will give you and God will give me, as I share, a new passion to see His glory declared among the nations. Now, in many ways, it's clear that the gospel is advancing among the unreached. In 1989, there were about three believers in Mongolia. Maybe some of you don't know where Mongolia is. It's right between Russia and China. Huge country, about three believers in 1989. Now there are over 40,000, and they are sending out hundreds of missionaries into unreached areas themselves. But think about the, the country of South Korea. It's just kind of a little bit of a blip on the map, isn't it? They've now surpassed the U.S. in sending missionaries to unreached areas. In fact, in, uh, where we serve, we're bumping into South Korean missionaries all the time. They're doing amazing things. They're incredibly hardworking, almost to a fault. But they are seeing God do incredible things through their ministries. Right now, 70% of the world's missionaries are now coming from the non-Western world. And in some ways, we think, oh man, what are we doing? But this is really good news, isn't it? It means that the gospel is advancing among the unreached. And countries that generations ago were unreached are now sending people to unreached areas. But this by far does not mean that the work is done. In fact, there are 2.5 billion unreached people today, which is 42% of the world's population. So what that means is basically 42% of all the nations, that word, that word ethne, that the command that Christ gave us, go to the nations, 42% of those still have little, if any, opportunity to even meet a Christian, much less to hear a meaningful gospel message. So among the unreached world, that's that 42%, there are about 10,000 missionaries, full-time missionaries, and then about 20,000 full-time Christian workers. Those would be like national people who are working among unreached people. So a total of about 30,000 people working among the unreached. Wow, that sounds amazing, doesn't it? At the same time, among the evangelized world, the other 58% of the population, and that doesn't, the the unreached number is about 2% Christian or less. So the evangelized world would be about 3% Christian or more. So among the evangelized world, there are more than 300,000 full-time missionaries and about 5 million Christian workers. So that means that 42%, the 42% of the nations, the unreached, are getting about 0.03% of the full-time missionary resources. America alone employs as many as 500,000 pastors, which is more than all the missionaries in the world combined. I'm not very good at business, um, but I think anyone who looks at these numbers would say, wow, something, something is amiss in our priorities. What about financial resources? Among all the churches, about $450 million goes to reaching the unreached. Now, it's not a small amount of money, $450 million. The problem is 
that that's about 1% of all missions giving is designated to go to those who have never heard before. That's about as much as uh, in 2011, Americans spent $450 million, that same amount, they spent that much money on Halloween costumes for their pets. At the same time, Christians spend about $8 billion a year attending conferences to talk about doing missions. So when there is still 42% of the world who still have, have had no chance to hear the gospel message or to even interact in a meaningful way with a Christian, we have to stop and ask ourselves some serious questions. How can we as a church and as individual Christians evaluate and increase our commitment to obeying the commission of Christ? If our theology tells us that the gospel is great and is available for all people, why do we have such a hard time reaching out to our neighbor, much less going to the 42% who are unreached? Somewhere it seems as if our, our values and our professions are not really lining up correctly. We sang some amazing, amazing songs this morning. I know sometimes if you're like me, we sing the songs. But are we actually bringing the gospel closer to the unreached that we're singing about in more concrete, in real concrete and personal ways? Oftentimes these are you know, songs that we sing or we listen to in the car but they're not really activities that we're involved in. As one pastor and writer, Sandy Wilson, said, he said, if the gospel is not going out, there's probably something about the gospel that you don't believe. I think all of us come to this passage, including myself, we say, God, we do believe. Help our unbelief. And I think Psalm 96 helps us with this. God is calling us to deepen our commitment to reaching the nations. Obedience that flows out of an amazement for His glory. And in 13 verses, we are given a vision to the right motivations of missions, the goal of missions, and really the triumph of missions. And we see that at the center of all of that is amazement at the glory of God. So we see that Worship is the motivation for missions. Worship is the goal of missions. And ultimately, worship is the triumph of missions. Let me read, first of all, first we see that worship is the motivation of missions. Let me read verses 1 through 6 of Psalm 96. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless His name, tell of His salvation from day to day. Declare His glory among the nations, His marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the people are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before Him. Strength and beauty are in His sanctuary. As we come to Psalm 96, this is a song that was written by David after the Ark of the Covenant had been recaptured from the Philistines and had been brought back and placed in a tent in Jerusalem. Once again, God had planted His throne in Jerusalem. 
God's salvation had come. The enemies were defeated. God was once again dwelling with his people and David could not contain his excitement at the salvation of God. It was uncontainable. And so in response, he had his congregation begin to sing and he wrote songs to praise the salvation of God. He is expressing back to the Lord how great he is. I think singing is probably one of the deepest ways humans can express their emotion. It's one of the one of the things I really enjoy about the culture that we live in is people are unafraid to sing. I was, uh, uh, about two months ago, I was sitting around with four, three box guys. It was about 10 o'clock at night, and one of them kind of nudged the other one, and it was kind of like this, hey, are you thinking what I'm thinking kind of a thing? And uh, he said, hey, you want to go sing after we're, after we're done here? And the other guy got all excited, and I, I talked to him. I was like, so, so you guys at 10 o'clock at night, you're headed off to go sing karaoke said, oh yeah, we love this. I thought, you know what? This probably wouldn't happen in America, I don't think. But I love that aspect of the culture that is uninhibited. And you see David in this passage, he's saying God's glory is so amazing that he's, he's uninhibitedly singing and declaring his praise to God. What is this song or this expression like? It's a new song. It's, it's not a newly written song, but it's a fresh song. It's a song expressing today's awareness of God's salvation. God has saved you today from your sins. It's also a continual song. It's not just an attitude that we put on on Sunday morning when we come here and Charles starts playing on the piano. It's a daily amazement at God's salvation. Every day, we should be overwhelmed by His love for us. It's also a song that can't be contained by one congregation or one nation, but it is a song that is to be sung by all the earth. God is so great that He deserves the worship of the entire earth. Every person, every creature is called to sing about His salvation. His glory cannot be contained. I love the way uh, Isaiah says this in 49.6 when he's talking about the coming Messiah. God is speaking to the Messiah and He's saying, It's too light a thing that you should be my servant to bring back the preserved of Israel. In other words, he's saying, I'm not just sending you to Israel. That's too light a thing. I will make you a light for the nations that my salvation will reach the ends of the earth. Earlier in Isaiah 14, he says, he says, one day the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. God's glory is so immense that it demands to go to the ends of the earth. If you remember, David is seeing a shadow. He's seeing the ark. We in Christ have come to the reality of our salvation, Jesus Christ. Isn't our salvation awesome? Let's just stop and think about that. You can say with confidence, based on God's promises, that your sins are forgiven. About a month and a half ago, I was sitting, I, I, uh, I almost literally bumped into an 83-year-old man. And I started talking to him. He was a, he was a Uyghur man, uh, so he'd been a, a Muslim for 83 years. And he had actually reached very high levels of leadership within the country, within the Islamic um, Association. And I asked him, I said, 
I said, you have probably done a lot of really good things in your life. What is God going to say when you see him? Is he going to accept you into heaven? And the best response that he could give is he ought to. He should. And then he started naming off all of these things that he had done. And in that culture, if you go to Mecca, I mean, you're, you're pretty much in. You're going to be saved. Is what they believe. And he, he started telling me that he had been to Mecca dozens of times. And not only had he been there, he had taken thousands of people and led uh, groups to Mecca himself. But the best answer he could give was, I should. Our salvation says we shouldn't. We shouldn't. But God has saved us. And based upon the promises of God's word, your sins are forgiven. You are no longer an enemy with God, but He has made you His child. You are going to inherit a kingdom. Through the Spirit, God has given you the power to say no to sin. You are in a new family where you can give and receive love in ways that non-Christians cannot even begin to understand. It's awesome to be a Christian, isn't it? I love what John says. Behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us that we should be called the children of God. Behold, look at that salvation. But the Gospel is not just a blessing that we should enjoy. But it is also a stewardship that we are called to take part in. And this is where Psalm 96 is is headed. In verse 3, David moves from singing to the Lord to declaring His glory. And with this word, declare or tell, the direction is shifted from a Godward praise to a manward declaration or proclamation. So singing describes the attitude or the heart of God's people who are overwhelmed with His salvation. Declaring should be Describing the actions of God's people. The word means actually to tell or to tell the news. And it's very very closely connected with our word evangelize. So this includes our neighbors, of course. But the words nations or peoples has in view the ends of the earth. This is the 42% of the world that are still unreached today. God's salvation is so great that we should not rest until He is worshipped by all people from every nation, every language, every hamlet, every village, every enclave within the megacities. He deserves the worship of all creation. What is the glory of God we're declaring? We're declaring the glory of Christ. Jesus Christ is the light of the glory of God in the face of of Jesus Christ. All the peoples of the world are worshiping idols or they are worshiping Christ. There is nothing in between. As we work with uh, Uyghur and Box people, our primary goal is to expose them to the person of Christ. Recently, we were sitting with several Box friends and we were reading the story about the lame man being brought in through the roof before, uh, before Christ. It's an amazing story. Jesus is sitting here teaching. 
And all of a sudden, his friends start tearing the roof open and lowering you know, this guy down who's been lame. Jesus pauses what he's doing. And he looks over at the man and he heals him. And then he says to them, your sins are forgiven. So we're reading this story with these Muslim friends. And suddenly they're encountering in that story a Christ who is declaring himself to be the creator by healing simply with the word. He is declaring himself to be strong as he is declaring this man's sins to be forgiven. And he is seen as beautiful. Who has compassion like this to heal a man's body and forgive a man's sins? Who has compassion and love like like Christ? And they're forced in those moments to see the glory and the beauty of God and to look at what they themselves are holding on to and consider how empty and how void it is. We could turn around and ask those same students, could your God forgive your sins? Their only response would be, he probably could, but we have no idea if he will. Could your God speak and heal a man? Well, of course he would, but I don't think he would ever do that. He would have no reason to enter into our world and do something like that. That would make him too low. And they're forced to look at the idols that they have in their hand, and they're empty. They're nothing. But maybe you're, you're not a Christian here today. If you're not a follower of Christ, whatever it is that you are placing your hope in, money, comfort, your children, your spouse, your future, your job, the entertainment that you enjoy, these ultimately will not satisfy you. God made the heavens and He calls you to turn from the idolatry that is empty to the One who made the heavens and embrace His salvation provided through Christ. Now as Christians, as a church, what is our response to this generous Gospel? Are you basking in the blessings of the Gospel? Or are you making concrete efforts to see the Gospel penetrate the 42% who up till now have had no opportunity to hear the Gospel? I heard one speaker recently say, a lot of what the church enjoys today is really what's coming in glory. We're basking in the blessings of the Gospel without going out. Maybe that's a little bit like what heaven is going to be like. But we're not there yet. We still have work to do. We still have a glorious God to declare to people who have not yet heard. Well, if our hearts are not overwhelmed with praise to God for our salvation, how can we expect to tell the nations? If you are not refreshing yourself in the Gospel, the Great Commission is going to be a burden to you that you'll try to offload on other people or you'll try not to think about. It's not going to engage your heart. I think a test for our passion for God is our passion for the unreached. It is easy for us as well to be drawn away into idolatry that masks for us the glory of God. And if we are holding on to our our own idolatries, how are we going to see the greatness of God? And how are we going to be moved to the lost? How are we going to rightly worship God when we are so consumed by 
a desire for comfort, a desire for fashion, a desire for wealth, a desire for career advancement. All of these things have a, such a sinister way of masking us from seeing the greatness and the glory of God. It's not a struggle that we're immune to. Just because we're overseas, it doesn't mean, boom, all of a sudden we have all this stuff nailed. We have to daily look outside and we see this you know, clouded city. And it can just be overwhelmingly depressing. And we just start asking this question, this is not comfortable. What are we doing here? And then we have to recalibrate ourselves back to the glory of God and say, is the glory of God worth it? Is the glory of God worth letting go of some of our comforts? I often remind myself of, uh, um, I think the words of Paul describing Christ. He said, even though he was rich, yet for our sake he became poor. Why? So that we might become rich. That's really the work of the gospel among the unreached. We're letting go of a lot so that people can experience the grace of Christ. God and comfort are not going to compete. So we have seen that worship of God motivates us to declare His salvation. Now we will see that worship of God is the goal of mission. Verses 7-9, through nine, look at that with me. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Bring an offering and come into His courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before Him all the earth. So in verses 1-6, through six, David three times calls people who know His salvation to sing the glory of God. Now in verses 7-9, through nine, He calls the nations to ascribe or to give to the Lord the glory due His name. So there is a transfer of worship. Those who once worshipped idols now are giving their praise to the one true God. David is using kind of the Old Testament imagery in which he's calling God's people to gather together and worship God. This is what we do this morning. God's people are coming together and we are worshiping God. He mentions that only through sacrifice, only through sacrifice can we enter into the presence of God and now final sacrifice has come. We have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. All people can now enter into the presence of God in the splendor of holiness. People can leave their idolatry and begin to form new communities under a new king. They gather with others to worship God clothed in the righteousness of Christ, giving God the glory that is due His name. So this is, in many ways, a call to plant communities, plant churches among the unreached. Peter describes the church being gathered from among the Gentiles in 1 Peter 2.9. He says, you are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the glory, the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now 
you have received mercy. So God is creating a new nation which covers the entire earth. It's a new kingdom that is under His reign and under His uh, mercy. So the goal of missions, especially frontier missions, is not just to declare the gospel or to help people in some way, but it is to plant communities that are displaying His glory in the church where churches are gathered together. There's a declaration of the glory of God that confounds angels. It confounds principalities and powers and demons. They can't understand the depth of the mercy of the grace of Christ. If we long to see God's glory, we will long to see places that for generations there's never once been a worshiper. We will long to see in those places people gathered together under the authority of Christ, loving each other, worshiping God, being a church. Now we all have an amazing blessing of community here. We hear the word preached every week. We come and we're able to partake of the Lord's Supper together. But in spite of all the grace that's given to us, I don't think any of us would say that the Christian life is easy. Imagine what it is like for isolated believers among the Uyghur or the box people who have never even met another believer from their own people group. Everything is against them. Their parents are against them. Their entire culture is against them. Even many times their own conscience is against them. We have a stewardship in the Gospel to strive together to see the church established among these people. Maybe you are thinking, I understand the motivation and the purpose of missions, but the task seems overwhelming. And it is. Will the Gospel really advance? I was reminded a few, several weeks ago, I was teaching our kids' Sunday school class in the international church that we go to, and the theme was the story's not over yet, talking about the promises of God. And so all the kids were recounting all these stories that they know or these movies that they've seen where everything seems really dark. Every, everything seems like the good guys are going to lose. But if you're watching that, reading that book with somebody who's already encountered the story, now they can lean over and say, the story's not over yet. Just wait. It's okay. And I think that's where we're at in Psalm 96 here. We can easily look at these numbers and these statistics and say, you know, kind of throw up our hands. When we weekly encounter people, talk to people, who seem to have absolutely no desire to interact with us about the Gospel. What do we do? Do we just start working, expecting that God is not going to do anything? Do we throw up our hands and come back? I think God wants us to go to His Word, particularly a point like this. In in, uh, verses 10-13, through we see that worship ultimately 
is the triumph of missions. Missions will succeed. Read verses 10 through 13 with me. It says, Say among the nations, The Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for He comes. He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the earth in righteousness and all the peoples in faithfulness. This is the climax of the psalm. Again, the church is called in verse 10 to make a declaration, the Lord reigns. If you visualize this psalm with me, if you visualize it unfolding, you see kind of at the beginning, there's a small congregation of people gathered who are overwhelmed with the glory of God, and they're going out, and they're declaring to the nations the good news. Then some hear, and they believe, and they gather into congregations in verses 7 through 9, and they begin to ascribe the glory of, of God. And then in verse 10, it's like the boundaries again are kind of pushed out. And they're going out to the nations once again. New groups of believers are saying among the nations, the Lord reigns. We've seen this unfold in church history, right? God, Jesus gives the disciples the commission. Several days later, the Spirit fills them and 12 people are scattered across the globe declaring the glory of Christ. As I told you earlier, in 1989, there were about three believers in Mongolia. That's not very long ago. Before some of you were born, but most of us, man, wow, it's not long ago. Just a few months ago, our missions organization for the first time accepted Mongolian missionaries who were being sent into China, into Inner Mongolia to reach the still unreached Inner Mongolians. They are not now going out to declare to the nations. Do we believe, do we have hope that one day this is going to happen among Uyghur and Box people? That they're going to be sent out to the Middle East, to the places yet unreached. In verse 10 through 13, David speaks of a coming judgment, and there are really two parts about this judgment that I want to draw your attention. First of all, part of the message we are to declare to the nations is a warning of coming judgment. The king who has authority over every Creature on earth is coming to judge the nations. Revelation 1 7 says, Behold, he is coming in the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. Now, this is really a hard message. And it is one that I oftentimes encounter fear and bringing up to people, but it's the most loving message that we can possibly bring. You know, you may not realize this, but Muslim people believe that Jesus, Jesus is going to return and is going to judge them. That's part of their doctrine. They believe that. I oftentimes ask them, what are you going to do when Jesus comes back to judge you? And many times their response, I had one guy just stands out in my mind, he just said, I'm afraid. 
And I said, really? Are you you're afraid to see him? He said, I am really afraid. Second aspect about this gut judgment is this gives us a confident hope. This is a sign of our vindication when Christ comes back. He is going to declare Himself to be King. All the suffering the church has endured for the Gospel will be made right. We will stand and we will reign with Christ in such a complete salvation that all creation will be set free to sing to the Lord. As one author said, where God rules, even His humblest creatures can be themselves. How does this give us hope for missions? You know, this should really give us great hope that the thing, the idea that we desire most as Christians at our core, if you're born again, this is your deepest desire that all creation would be under the kingship of Christ. This will one day happen. It's guaranteed. It's written. The goal of missions, of more worshipers, that 42%, people from among every tongue and tribe and nation, it cannot fail. Our businesses may fail. If I had a business, it would have failed a long time ago. Our businesses may fail. Our health is going to fail. Our country seems to be failing. The dreams for your kids may come to nothing. Our money may fail, but this enterprise, the glory of God among the nations, will never fail. How else can this give us hope? For Christians, Jesus has been judged in your place. There's no judgment left for you. This frees you from fear to declare the gospel. With great boldness, we have nothing anymore to lose. Jesus said, don't fear those who can kill the body, but fear the one who can destroy the soul in hell. Doesn't this, shouldn't this free us up to be able to go to the ends of the earth with the gospel? I love Revelation 12.11. John is describing the defeat of Satan in which Satan is cast down and God's servants had conquered his rule through the declaration of the gospel. And this is what he says. He said they conquered Satan through the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. If we fear judgment, we're going to fear death. The fear of judgment for us has been removed. So what other fear can stop the gospel from going to the ends of the earth? Now as we conclude this morning, I'd like to bring out some practical considerations. I remember the first time two, um, two years after we had been on the field, I came back and uh, had the privilege of attending a conference where there were some really well-known mission speakers. You know, the kind that really just send everybody out to go to the field and, and you hear them talk. I remember sitting there and I was listening to one speaker in particular and he was talking about the glory of God. And I just, you know, and I was listening to him, and I was like, but you've never been there. It's easy to be motivated by that from here. You don't know how hard it is. By God's grace, 
over time, being able to reflect and to be able to realize this, the glory of God, is the only motivation that will sustain the work of the gospel. So I'd like to give you some, just some practical things to think about. First of all, is to consider the gospel. Remember how awesome your salvation is until it gives you a fresh joy in Christ. Consider how generous the gospel is until a new or a fresh song of thanksgiving fills your heart. Some of you, this is not a call for you to sing at all. Right? It's a call, call for joy to be in your heart. And when that joy awakens you, on the heels of that joy, think about the 2.5 billion who have never even had the opportunity to meet a Christian. And allow that fresh joy in you to move you, first of all, to prayer. We cannot underestimate the role of prayer in reaching the unreached. Paul understood this. This is why he said in Colossians 4.2, he said, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ. I heard one author say, it's like he's standing outside of the fortress of a human heart without a way to enter in. Multiple times a week, over the last several years, we have stood outside the hearts of the unreached with the Word, with no way, humanly, to enter. We are completely, completely unable to affect human hearts. It's actually sometimes maddening and even staggering to sit back and hear the words that they say about Jesus as they're reflecting on the stories. Words like, Jesus is amazing. Jesus is powerful. Jesus is a much greater prophet than the prophet Muhammad. I wish I could believe in him. They say things like this. But we cannot affect the conversion of people unless God moves. I love what Paul Miller says in his book, The Praying Life. He says, American culture is probably the hardest place in the world to pray. We are so busy that when we sit down to pray, we find it uncomfortable true we prize accomplishments production but praying is nothing but talking to god it feels useless as if we're wasting time every bone in our bodies screams get to work will you join us in faithfully praying that god would unlock the hearts of the Uyghur and the box people that we're able to interact with it's not just these. 42% of the world is unreached. Get creative. America, when you spend time in other countries, you realize that America is probably the, one of the most creative nation in the world. Apply this creativity to prayer. Host a dinner once a month. Gather some friends together. Say, once a month, we're going to pray for the unreached. Resources abound. There's so many resources. We're really good at doing resources, right? I did a quick little search the other day. Uh, top 50 unreached people groups. How to resources. Excellent. Um, 
Take one of those, two of those a month. And you have your material for the next two years. Learn about them. Spend an hour in prayer for them. And your hearts are going to begin to be drawn to them in a new way. So we have fresh joy in the gospel. Let it move you into gospel-fueled sending. We really have to be intentional about sending missionaries. Missionaries don't accidentally get created. It is something that we have to cultivate. I think there's a family aspect of this, and there's also a corporate aspect of this. But both need to be intentional and should begin when our children are really young. I think families, some of you I know do this much better than I do. Intentionally begin to teach your children about the unreached. Teach them to pray for the unreached. I love, it's so encouraging to us when we hear uh, some of you parents talk about your children daily praying for us. Daily praying that these people would be reached with the gospel. That is going to have a massive effect on them. Most of us wise North Americans have intentionally begun to save for our child's college education. What greater energy should we have in preparing our children to reach the unreached? I think sometimes also we imply things to our children as they're growing up. We imply expectations of them, which basically are, get married, have children, and live close to me. Right? Are we... Are we giving them this vision or are we giving them a vision for the gospel to the nations and as a church missions is missions regularly being brought up before the children are we expecting our children to become missionaries someday it should be really inter, interwoven within the discipleship of our church and and are we challenging people are we challenging each other to consider the call That leads us to gospel-fueled going. As we think about the joy of the gospel, it should move some of us to go. God doesn't call everyone, as Tom said. If he did, none of us would be able to go, right? But for most of us who have gone to the field, it begins with a really cultivating a desire that grows over time. I don't think we really need to look for a mysterious feeling or you know, some kind of a you know, calling like Samuel had, right? So much as we really need to be willing to cultivate a desire to go. Many of our energies are spent in cultivating desires for other things, cultivating desires for our career, cultivating desires for where we're going to attend college, for those of you who are still young. I think maybe many of us just kind of wait, you know, for this word, magical word from God telling us to go. And I wonder if it might be better for some of us to posture ourselves toward going and kind of wait for the magical word from God to do something else. Right? God is multiplying the going from this church, and it's really awesome. Catherine, who's not here this morning, and William, they are going to daily, they will daily be engaging people from completely unreached people groups. These people for generations, will have never heard the gospel. And I just want to throw it out there for those of you who are young still, in college maybe. Just want to go ahead and plan on coming over for a year. 
It's an awesome way to serve. It's very, it's, it's not, you're not, you know, cleaning a room or putting a, you know, you're, you're not doing physical service. You're interacting with the unreached about the gospel. Now, I, I do have the distinct advantage here this morning of I really don't know anyone's situation. Um, but I know that there are, in this, in this whole country, there are thousands who are trained for full-time gospel ministry who can't find a job. At the same time, there are only 10,000 full-time missionaries serving among the unreached. It's sometimes to us on the field, it sometimes seems that those who are willing to come aren't really qualified to come. Maybe that's self-indicting. At the same time, it seems that those uh, who are qualified are not willing to come. And I just want to encourage some of you who are preparing for full-time gospel ministry to seriously consider the fruitful ministry that you could have on the field. There is a desperate need for well-trained Theologically trained, healthy, mature believers on the field. It's a desperate need. Another call that I want to just bring out, a practical application, is the call to foreign students. 60% of foreign students that come to America to study at college, university, 60% of those are from unreached countries. I just did a quick little search, North Carolina State, I know it's not right around the corner. 4,000 international students. 40% of those have, are studying for advanced degrees. Now, I also read that 40% of the world's uh, leaders of state, the presidents, the, the leaders of the world, 40% of those have studied at one time in the United States. And of these foreign students that come over, only about 10% of them are actually engaged with the gospel while they're here. It's very close to home. We were actually when Nick and Tom were visiting, we were at a mosque and I was talking to a, a box lady and uh, I was asking her if she knew any Christians. And she said, you know, my niece went to the United States to study and all of a sudden there was these people helping her find an apartment, they were giving her furniture, they were giving her meals, and they were Christians. She said they were amazing people. So there's an impact that can be made. And if we're going to send more, it requires gospel-fueled giving. If more are going to be sent, they have to be funded. This is the biblical model, the pattern of Romans 10, is it not? I don't know if you realize this, but we are the richest country in the history of the world. In our city, which you, when you read news articles about our country, you're under the impression that the country we serve in is extremely wealthy. Don't believe everything you read. In our city, if a college graduate can find a job making about $800 a month, he has done well. If they are really well connected and they can get a job making $1,800 a month, man, they've arrived. They're set. In fact, if you make, and here, if you make $20,000 a year, you're among the richest 10% in the world. I think in America we call that poverty. If you make $2,500 a year, you're among the richest 15% in the world. You know, our response to a glorious gospel 
And a glorious stewardship should be amazing generosity to see the glory of God go to the ends of the earth. You know, in conclusion, one of the, one of the things I love about this psalm is that it says nothing about the cost. It doesn't say anything about the cost that it takes to declare the gospel to the nations. It doesn't talk about the physical, the material, the emotional costs of declaring the gospel to the nations. I think the reason why is because it assumes the glory of God far outweighs any cost that will be incurred along the way. Just imagine if your child was diagnosed with cancer. Curable if treated immediately and actively. What is your first response going to be? Your first response is going to be, when do we start? Let's do it. You don't start tallying up the costs. The value of your child's life far outweighs any costs you're going to occur. You would rather live in a cardboard box for the rest of your life than not give your child the treatment that he needs. Why? Because his value is so much greater than the cost. I think as we see this psalm, the glory of God far outweighs the light and the momentary sufferings that we are going to encounter along the road to reaching the unreached with the gospel. I invite you now to spend a few minutes in prayer. There is a lot of rejoicing and praising God for the salvation that He's given us. There may be repenting, but I invite you to pray with us now.